Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. All right, well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And we are going to look at some verses in the New Testament today. There's certainly Old Testament verses that do affect what we're talking about tonight. But we have been going through a series on the ages, uh, or the dispensational ages, we would say. And tonight we're going to talk about the age of grace. So defining dispensationalism once again, it's God's creative management of the ages in keeping with his own eternal plan, incorporating the good and bad choices of humans. That's my definition. And we've looked at eternity past before any of the ages, the things God decided before there was the first thing created. And then we've looked at the age of innocence, the age of conscience, the age of human government. And those first three ages involve the first 2,000 years of life on earth and were applicable to everybody living on earth. And so I've written here the first three ages, innocence, conscience, and human government, included the two covenants with the entire world through Adam and Noah. So there's your first fill in the blank, the entire world through Adam and Noah. The Adamic covenant was that we are to be stewards of the earth's resources. That's still true. If you're the person driving by my yard and throwing things, trash in it, then you're not following the Adamic covenant there to be stewards of earth's, uh, the earth's resources. Um, the Noahic covenant promises there won't be another global flood. And so God has promised that until uh, the, uh, until the uh, second coming, uh, there will not be a destruction that way by flood. Um, and the rainbow is a promise. Every time we see a rainbow, we're reminded that, uh, yes, God does judge sin, but he won't do it that way. Now, the book of Second Peter tells us there's a judgment by fire coming, uh, so that is something to be sobered about. But uh, the last two times, we've looked at the age of promise and the age of law. Those two ages specifically involved the Jewish people and covered another time period of about 2,000 years, bringing the world up to the time when Christ came to die for the sins of the world. The Age of Promise included the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. The Age of Law included two covenants, the conditional one made to Moses and the unconditional Davidic covenant. So the Age of Law included Moses forming Israel into a nation and the later inclusion of the covenant with David. So try, you know, one thing you look at as you go through the scriptures is uh, as the ages unfold, and in every age, people are always saved by putting their faith in God, and then they need to do what God commanded in that age, not to save them. They're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. So Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and then there were some specific things God called Abraham to do during that age. But as the ages unfolded, uh, sprinkled in those ages are these covenants leading up to the time we're in now, the new covenant with Jesus. So here's how we want to um, fill in the ne next blank. The next two ages, which were promise and law, included the three covenants that God made with Israel. So Israel's your fill in the blank there, through Abraham, Moses, and David. 
Whereas some of these covenant promises were just for Israel, others involved the blessing of the world through Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Some of these promises were fulfilled at Christ's first coming, which inaugurated this age of grace we're in. Others will be fulfilled in ages to come. And you do see, sometime if you Google the word ages, it might come out a little different in different translations, but it does speak about ages past, it speaks about the present age, it speaks about ages to come, and that's why it's good to, in your understanding of the whole Bible to take the kind of time we are to set this down. And it goes along somewhat with prophecy like we're talking about with the book of Revelation on Sunday morning. So think about it this way. Following a literal reading of the Bible, the world is about 6,000 years old at this point. The first, in the outworking of God's plan, there were 2,000 years of there being Gentiles only, then another 2,000 years of there being added in Jews and Gentiles. So God called Abraham out of a Gentile people, and all of a sudden now we have Gentiles and Jews with God blessing the world through the Jewish people. The age we're going to look at today has now covered the last 2,000 years with a third group added to Jews and Gentiles. What's that? The church made up of believing Jews and Gentiles, or Christians, right? And that group is the global uh, universal church, we call it. Um, so for each of these dispensational ages, we're looking at the things you've got there, and we've got some other fill-in-the-blanks before we just do a little tour through the scriptures. And um, so the first thing is the name of the age, the age of grace, sometimes called the church age, too. Scriptures covered from Acts 2, the day of Pentecost when the church began, all the way out to Revelation 19 or so, before the uh, second coming of Christ. Now some would, uh, and we'll note this in a minute, but some would say uh, that instead of it going all the way out to the second coming, you would want to stop at the um, rapture. Uh, before the tribulation, and many of us believe it'll be before the tribulation, and you would call the tribulation a separate age, uh, but just like the Davidic covenant was part of the tail end part of the age of law, uh, in many of our eyes the tribulation is a little bit different time at the end of the age of grace. So the synopsis, the age of grace began on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit began placing believers in Jesus together in churches regardless of ethnic background. During this age, the gospel of Jesus is guaranteed to eventually win people from every people group on earth to Jesus. We see that in Revelation chapter 5. We see it again in Revelation chapter 7. So cool to think about that, uh, that you know, they talk about big, hairy, audacious goals, right? Yeah, have you ever heard somebody talk about, our company needs a big, hairy, audacious goal? Well, Jesus had 11 disciples before him. Judas was gone. Uh, with other men and women that were gathered around, there was uh, less than 500, perhaps less than 120. There were 120 people gathered in the upper room praying. And he said, okay, I'm leaving you guys. Take this message to everybody on earth. And when they get saved, baptize them in the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm going to be with you always, spiritually speaking. I'll be with you till the end of the age. Uh, but uh, what a great promise, you know, and a big, hairy, audacious goal. And that will happen, uh, Revelation 5 assures us. So believers have the privilege of the Spirit indwelling them and prompting them to be Jesus' spiritual witnesses everywhere, even as they anticipate Jesus' coming kingdom. Okay, so note, 
Just as the age of law included the Davidic covenant as a later stage within it, the age of grace will include the seven-year time of tribulation as its last stage before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Since so much happens during those seven years, we're going to take a closer look at the tribulation next time. It truly is worth covering by itself, and Revelation has chapter 6 to 19 cover it uh, so that we'll have some idea of what goes on during that time in fulfillment of what Daniel the prophet talked about and other Old Testament prophets did. So one of the sheets we gave you, I think, did we give you um, one that's got uh, two different breakdowns on there? or? Yeah, you did. Okay. So that's just something for you to look at. One presents it as having, you know, 10 different ages. And one, another one has it as seven ages, seven dispensational ages uh, with um, stages, kind of like I talked about there with uh, the tribulation being uh, a stage of the age of grace. Um, so that's not my work. I did get that off of the internet. Uh, but it uh, is a good way to break things down, and um, I just love the fact that um, you know that many people that love the word and have studied intensely, whether they're some of the great Liberty University professors or Dallas Seminary professors or others at great schools and laymen and laywomen, you know, have been able to look at those things and say, okay, throughout it all, we see God getting glory, um, but we do see some things that we are do well to appropriate. And one of the reasons I've told you this is important is because uh, there are passages when Israel's about to go into the promised land where God says, hey, Israel, if you'll obey me from the start as you go into the promised land, your people won't have any tumors among you. And some well-meaning but misguided Christians today will say, well, see there, if you really are following the Lord, you won't have cancer or you won't have a disease or something like that. And the problem in that case is you're reading other people's mail, Right. Uh, that had an intended first audience of Israel, probably just as they went into the promised land. It's probably a promise a Jewish person today can't claim. It was a limited time only offer, the same way Garden of Eden conditions were a limited time offer in the age of innocence to Adam and Eve. And once lost, it was lost all the way out until the end of the book, you know. So um, it's very important to know those things. Romans has a passage that does say that all things written before were for our learning, and so there's always principles we can extract, but we also need to know how to rightly divide the word of truth so that we don't make simple mistakes like that and cause people torture, like when they get cancer, they say, well, what'd you do to deserve it? You know, rather than understanding this is just the way the world works, you know, because sin is in the world. Uh, sometimes anybody, the greatest saint of all, can deal with those things, and uh, I tend to think that my wife is a lot more godly than I am, and yet she's the one in the family that got cancer. She reminded me of that when that happened, by the way. How come this didn't happen to you? <laughs> so anyway, and uh, she, she was especially irked that she has eaten healthy and tried so hard to keep her body, and, you know, and, and she's the one that got it, and I'm a junkyard dog and haven't, you know, but so I might be the only spouse in history that if something like that does happen to me, my wife will say, yes! <laughs> Just kidding. Might need to edit that out. Uh, okay. <laughs> so the time period covered 33 AD when Christ went to heaven, and 50 days later, the day of Pentecost happened, or actually uh, 50 days after the cross, he went to heaven. So it's the day of Pentecost, the second coming of Jesus Christ, with the church being raptured at least seven years before Christ's second coming. Now, 
uh, good Christians that study the Bible have different views on the rapture, uh, but uh, as we go through Revelation, I'm going to present to you why I believe the rapture is before the tribulation, and uh, so I'll do that a little bit in these studies too, and uh, so I don't mind telling you that, you know, um, but uh, some people uh, would just say, hey, the rapture and the second coming are the same thing, and so there's no need to draw a distinction between them because it both happens at the same time at the end of the time of trouble. But at the rapture, the rapture passages that we look at in the Bible, it shows us Jesus meeting the church in the air and taking them to heaven, right? And uh, at the second coming, Jesus returns with the church to earth to commence his physical kingdom on earth. So I've heard others try to explain it in terms of two stages of the event, just seven years apart. You know, you go up and later you're coming down and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, so now in other ages, there has been overlap uh, between the ages. So, you know, again, we're just, we're trying to give ourselves helpful categories to understand the whole of scriptures and, uh, and, and, and uh, make sure we don't overstate things. Uh, but if there is something to there being ages like we're talking about, then there's obviously some overlap. The 30 years Jesus lived on earth would be an example of that, right? It's an overlap between the end of the old covenant, the age of law, uh, and the new covenant in his blood. So they ratified the Mosaic covenant with blood. They, we ratified the new covenant in the blood of Christ, right? His blood shed for us. We have accepted his blood just as Israel did when they accepted the terms of the old covenant. And um, so there's overlap because of his time on earth. Uh, and uh, so the privileges and characteristics of the age of grace. Um, now, for those that haven't been with us every uh, one of these weeks, everything I say now is not going to be on your sheet. So some of them are, and I'll try to point out to you when you're filling in a blank, but I've got a few more things for each of these than you have there, so I could keep your notes down to two pages. Um, so the first privilege is that Christ's presence on earth has shown everyone what God is truly like. Uh, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John 1 says... The Son has explained the Father. He has, uh, the word there is the same one we get exposition from. He has exposited the Father to us. So it's so neat. If anybody ever asks you what God is like, you can say, you want to know what God is like? Yeah, I want to know what God's like. Learn about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the whole New Testament and all the promises in the Old Testament about him because if you learn about Jesus, you're learning about God. So how wonderful is it that we know what the heart of God is like uh, not only from, you know, how he cared for Israel under the old covenant, but also he himself has tabernacled among us, as John 1 says. He has lived on earth and uh, shown us the way. More than that, he is the way, right? And so the next thing is Christ fulfills, that's your fill in the blank, he fulfills the demands of the law for all who believe. And I've written here Romans 10, 4. So when David beat Goliath, they had a champion. Israel was on one side, the Philistines were on the other. The Philistines sent out their champion and Goliath said, hey, here's the terms, right? You send a guy out and the winner, everybody on the, on the winning side gets to come kick the tail of the ones that are on the losing side. The whole team's gonna win because the champion has won, right? And that's why every bit of the life of Christ is so important when you study the Gospels. Everywhere 
uh, Adam and Eve failed, Christ succeeded. That's why Satan gave three temptations to Adam and Eve, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and they blew it. Israel blew it the same way in the wilderness, right? Christ defeated Satan in the wilderness where people had failed, Jesus succeeded. Every one of us has sinned in multitudinal ways. Jesus never sinned. Um, and so every bit of his life is, impo is important. He became our champion the way David was Israel's champion. And all of Israel won that day because David won. And so um, uh, when Christ says it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, boy, did he ever do that for us. Uh, you know, the... Um, Matthew 5 says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you won't get into the kingdom of heaven. Nobody tried harder to do the right thing than the Pharisees uh, did, right? Uh, they, um, they added rules to the law so they could keep even further away from sin. And of course, that made a mess a whole lot of it up because they lost the spirit of the thing, you know, and, the, and how it pointed to Christ and stuff. But um, what Jesus was saying is you got to be perfect to get into heaven. Or you can take plan B. You can have somebody perfect take your place on judgment day. He fulfilled the law. So he becomes the end of the law for all who believe. And Romans 10, 4 kind of is one of the passages that says that. As the perfect priest, he offered the perfect sacrifice fulfilling the priestly law. That's what Hebrews 7 tells us. Uh, that, uh, you know, he, he it's not one of these Old Testament deals where the priest had to you know, over and over again make the sacrifice. He offered himself up once for all. The perfect priest offering the perfect sacrifice and now there's no need to, uh, at the end of each service, uh, sacrifice some, you know, and, and burn it up right there, you know, because Christ has done that for us. So Romans 8, 1 says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's one of the reasons why we call this the age of grace because of that great acronym for grace God's riches at Christ's expense, right? That is so cool to think of. So believers live under grace and not under the Mosaic law. We're not subject to the rigorous demands of the civil law of Israel, the old covenant of Moses and Israel. Galatians 3, 24 and 25 says that the law was our guardian to lead us to Christ. Now that Christ has come, we're no longer under that tutor, under that guardian. And so... Uh, that means, among other things, that we can eat barbecue pig, and we can eat shellfish, you know, and we don't have to have all those, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if we have mold in the house, we can deal with it in a 21st century way rather than look for the high priest to come over and uh, kick us out of the house till it's judged clean or unclean and whether the mold's growing or not and those things. So there were so many rigorous demands there, and they added on so many th extra things to that. It was the law code for an entire nation. And the early Jewish Christians said, some of them said, that the, that the Gentile Christians need to do all that too. And the New Testament apostles clarified and said, nope, that wasn't the message from headquarters. You know, uh, you don't have to become a cultural Jew to be a growing Christian. Uh, the faith can be, uh, it's, it's going to look very similar uh, across the world in that you're going to see love for God and love for one another. Uh, but everybody around the world's not also going to look like a cultural Jew, right? It's pretty powerful. Well, it's a tremendous privilege that believers now have the Holy Spirit abiding within. So there's a fill in the blank. Uh, Ephesians 1 says, Having believed, you were sealed with the Spirit. That's your guarantee of your future inheritance. 
Uh, many other verses talk about how he indwells believers now. What a great promise. Believers have a reserved place in heaven, and their spirit rises to heaven at the moment of their death. And you know some folks that are there. And for them to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we know exactly where they are. We speak of losing them. That means down here, but we haven't really lost them. We're just, it's a while till we see them again, you know, and how neat that's going to be. Believers will not go through the coming time of tribulation. That's a Revelation 3.10 promise there. Um, new responsibilities. Well, individuals need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. That is a responsibility of all of us now. And the next one is for those who have believed to be baptized. So uh, what, did, uh, what was the sign of obeying the, um, uh, the Mosaic Covenant? It had come over also from the Age of Promise with Abraham. What did, they, what did you have to do to your Jewish boys? You had to circumcise them, right? And uh, that's part of the civil law within the law. And some of the early Jewish believers said, hey, these other Gentile believers, they need to be circumcised. And they talked about that and they said, nope, old covenant stuff. And now when a person believes, they're to be baptized, immersed as a believer. And that, that is ours. Not, not to save us, but because we're saved. Um, for believers to gather in local churches and to grow together in Christ. That is a responsibility. We're, we're not to go through this life alone. We've got brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got our Father in heaven. And uh, you feel sad for those that um, you know, are disconnected from fellowship. They're missing out on a lot. you know. And they say, well, maybe they're not missing out uh, because... Um, sometimes churches, people in churches say hurtful things or it's hard, you know. Well, Jesus knew that. He, he knew that this would be a tremendous laboratory to deal with death to self within, you know. Because, you know, married couples have to go through this, you know. Oh, you don't think like I do. You know, oh, should we get divorced? Well, it's just day one. Let's try to work it out. Okay, you know. You know and, and God puts us in churches, you know. And uh, this relational growth together, this humbling thing it is to hear people talk, um, you know, say things to us that might uh, question what we want to do. You know, it, it's, it's part of that uh, growing process the Lord has for us. And also, it's fun when we can do more together than we could ever do alone. Uh, here's one for you. For believers' primary allegiance to be to Jesus Christ and His church, not their ethnicity, their national origin, their socioeconomic status. Galatians 3.28 says, In Christ Jesus there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor uh, female, slave nor free. It doesn't, mean those, it doesn't mean we're not still those things, but what it means is Christ is our ultimate allegiance. I love the United States of America, but that's not my ultimate identity. Being a Christian is. Um, being a child of God is, right? And so uh, even though I would uh, defend my country if called upon to do so, um, I would not forget that I'm a child of God during that time, and some of the richest fellowship I ever have had was with people in other nations that felt the same way. Christ is the ultimate king, right? With the Spirit's aid, we're responsible to obey what Christ and the apostles have commanded, which basically lines up with God's moral law. So there is this consistency throughout the Scripture. And I've told you one of the great things about you know, the, the New Testament is, um, it will tell us everything we're supposed to do as believers. So, yes, read the Old Testament. Yes, learn from it. 
but if you have a question about whether you're to do something, it's commanded there, it'll be clearly spelled out in the pages of the New Testament, which is really neat. But it lines up with God's moral law. We have the responsibility to take the good news about Jesus to every people group on earth. And your final fill in the blank is to do that which God can reward at the judgment seat of Christ. So it's kind of fun. You know, you become a believer. You're going to heaven based on what Christ did for you. You could never earn that on your own. And then he tells you, hey, now, from the time you're saved until you get to heaven, if you do things that I've told you to do, I'll reward you for that one day too. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And it will, there, there will be a... The Bible kind of indicates in 1 Corinthians 3, there will be a sense of loss for believers that are there and have not uh, taken God up on that enough, you know. And you've heard me say, I like the analogy of, you know, he says, build on your faith with uh, the right foundation, you know, build with the right things. You got this foundation of Christ, build on it with the right things. Uh, wood, hay, stubble is gonna get burned up. Gold, silver, precious stones will still be there. And so I like to think of you standing before the Lord one day at this time of reward and the pile of all your thoughts, all your deeds, all your words, all the people you tried to reach out to, the, to for the Lord or shook your fist at in traffic, all those things, all those things just being a big old pile beside you and the fire of God's introspection put to it and all the wood, hay, stubble stuff will burn up and all that will be left that God can reward are the other things. And that's kind of a good way to think about it, isn't it? You know, I want to have a pile of things the Lord can reward, but my main motivation is just he loved me, I love him, I want to do what he says, you know, and you want to love others in his name. So, failure. Like Israel, the church has often gone through times of flagrant disregard of what Jesus made clear he expected of us. Um, it doesn't matter what label you put behind a denomination. Every denomination has some howlers of things that just don't look like what we're called to do in the New Testament, you know? And uh, so um, when you get back to basic Bible Christianity, many times you see how many ways we've had flagrant disregard, there's your fill in the blank, of what Jesus made clear expected of us. The second one there is the church has often gone through times of inward focus and failed to be as evangelistic and missions focused as the Great Commission calls for. Uh, he made very clear what he expected of us. You believe, you grow, learn your gifts and use them, uh, reach out to others in my name. And uh, so, you know, all believers are to have an external focus. We simply can't say, okay, there's enough people here now, no new people. And yet, what do churches often fight over? There are too many new people around, and we got to do things different because there's new people around, you know? And so, inward focus oftentimes gets a sidetrack. That's a fail for the church throughout the generations. Uh, of individuals within the world, the failure is to uh, embrace the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. So, uh, man, in multiple ways, the gospel has circled the globe and continues to. And it is a failure to hear the gospel, not respond, and go to hell instead of heaven. You don't have to go to hell. Um, a failure for Israel's first century leadership was the rejection of Christ at his first coming, postponing his second coming until, this, until after this age of grace. I don't know how it all works, but I'm pretty convinced on my own that had Israel embraced Jesus when he came, the Romans still would have executed him. He still would have been a sacrifice for sins but he would have started his, uh, the rest of those promises right there. 
the Old Testament knew, God knew what people would do, and so he put in prophecies about conquering king-type stuff, but all that got postponed when um, Israel rejected Christ in the first century, at least as an official uh, state, you know, state they did. And, um, and uh, so it postponed, and the postponement is what we're in now, this age of grace, right? That's pretty cool. Okay, judgment, the worldwide tribulation for all non-Christians living at the time of the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ, the battle of Armageddon there as Christ returns and uh, defeats a world that is taking him on, that has rejected the offer of the gospel. What will end when that age ends? Well, hallelujah, in the next age, the kingdom age, when Christ reigns on earth, there will be no satanic and demonic activity during Christ's thousand-year reign. So hallelujah! You know, that day's a coming, so that's a great one. And there's probably some other things we could think of, but carry over to the next ages. Jesus will one day return and reign on the throne promised to David in the land promised to Abraham, keeping all of God's promises to Israel. And now let's take a few minutes and let's go through as uh, many scriptures as we can before we get tired and want to get home at a decent hour in the midst of this rain. So you're in Matthew 1.1, right? So at the end of the Old Testament... You could have three words before you come to the New Testament. And some of you have heard me say it, but can anybody guess them? Or do you remember what I said? That what would be three words that would be good to put at the end of the Old Testament uh, if after reading the Old Testament? You got it, Vicki! Star of the day goes to Vicki! To be continued, because the Old Testament ends and the Messiah has not come. He has not died in the sinner's place. He's not conquered and reigned. Uh, and, you know, it's so sad to see for 2,000 years now uh, our Jewish friends trying to make sense of the fact that the Bible itself, their Old Testament, is all they acknowledge as Bible and to have tried to come up with a religion. And what they've done is they've taken detours and gone this way and that way. We're in a festival season right now. Right now, uh, we're in the fall festival season of Israel. And so there was the Feast of Trumpets in the Bible. Ten days later, there was the Day of Atonement. And then later in the month, our Jewish friends are actually in it right now, was the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Trumpet has been largely replaced. What the Bible said with the Feast of Trumpets has largely been replaced by what they call Rosh Hashanah, the first of the year. And they've largely made what should have been a time to think about God be a time to think about doing enough good works to make God impressed with you rather than anything that would point to faith in the Messiah and his promises. Um, so to be continued. Well, how does Matthew 1 open up? After 400 years of silence before the, gospel, before the Bible comes back in, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And He's just assuming his Jewish readers will know what that means. And they did. The early Jewish Christians understood, oh, Christ means Messiah. So everything promised is now we're told about how it's being fulfilled or will be fulfilled. It's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Note, he brings back in the two unconditional promises to Abraham and David of the land and of the king to reign on in the land, uh, but doesn't bring back in the name Moses there because that was a conditional covenant. You know, 
Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. So the author knew exactly what he was doing. He's saying, hey, promise fulfillment time has now come, you know, and moving on from there. Matthew 3, 1, John the Baptist shows up. He came preaching in the wilderness of Jesus of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why was the kingdom of heaven at, at hand? Because the king was at hand, right? And that's Jesus' message too. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus said, don't think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So he says, hey, these things are they which point to me. I've come to fulfill all that's there in there. Matthew 11. Jesus kind of talks about an age change going on here by talking about John the Baptist. Verse 11, 11, 11. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there's not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. What's he doing there? He's, in a way, indicating John is the last of that old, and now anybody who gets saved and the Holy Spirit's inside of them, man, you've got the spiritual, you got the king ruling in your heart spiritually. You're, you, got it, you got it better than John the Baptist did, who was the greatest of all that, you know. So a new age is beginning. In the Old Testament days, they didn't have anything like the indwelling, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now that Christ has completed his work, we do. And so he's indicating that. How about Matthew 19? Matthew 19, verses 27 through 30. Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall, we, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, it's kind of the words there, new genesis. In the new genesis, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Okay, now you're my disciples. You're following me. In a little bit of time from here in Matthew, he's going to give them the great commission to take the gospel to the end of the age and to the end of the, the, the age of grace. But he says there's an age coming when it's going to be almost like the Garden of Eden again. And you're going to get to be in on that in a physical rule. Spiritual rule first, physical rule to come, obviously spiritual then as well. You kind of get that. I love that phrase there in the regeneration. Well, we know Matthew 28. I already quoted it. The Great Commission where he sends out um, them to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Make disciples of all the nations. How about Luke 21? Luke 21 so many things we could pull out. You know, this is an overview, of course. And I'm going to overview for about nine more minutes or so and then pull it up. Luke 21, 24. This is in the middle of Jesus's, uh, we call it the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse, where he preached about end time stuff, uh, the destruction of the temple closer to his day and then end time stuff. 
And verse 24 says, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So um, the prophets speak of this time also that when Nebuchadnezzar took Judah captive and destroyed the temple, uh, really, in one way or another, Israel has been under foreign occupation ever since. Now, you say Israel's a nation again? Yes, as predicted by the prophets. The Ezekiel prophecy is very specific that there'd be kind of a three-stage uh, restoration of Israel toward the end of days. You know, that great... It's, it features in some great songs because all of us preachers like to think about preaching and dead bones coming to life, right? And so the prophecy says, preach to the bones, what's going to happen? And, and it really is specifically, though, a promise for Israel that first there'll be something like bones, the, the structure will be there again, and then the sinews and those things will be on the bones, and then the breath of life will come back in. And so Israel's got the bones together again now, and there's been a thriving of the agriculture and other stuff. The sinews are on there, but there's a promise that in the future one day, It'll be a spiritual thing there too. And right now, uh, relatively few Jews in Israel really believe in Jesus. Um, but one day, knowledge of him is just going to, from Jerusalem, spread to the whole earth, which is so exciting to think about. Um, John 14. We'll skip uh, to John 14. Probably the first reference to the rapture. Uh, John 14, Jesus, verses 1 through 3, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so he's promising, I'm going to go, and, and uh, then I'm going to come and get you and take you to where I am. First um, Thessalonians 4 fleshes that out a whole lot more. It gives the language about meeting the Lord in the air and uses the specific word about catching up, which in the Greek is harpizo, and in the, uh, in the Latin was rapturo, and that's why we use the word rapture there. If anybody ever tells you the word rapture is not in the Bible, you say you're wrong. You just don't know languages. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, when it says that we're caught up together to be with the Lord in the air, and after that we'll be with the Lord. Uh, that word is harpizo in the Greek, rapturo in the Latin, comes into English as rapture or caught up to make it easier. It could very well be translated raptured, you know, there. So um, John 16, this was part of the upper room discourse, John 14 to 16, before Jesus' prayer in John 17. Um, in verse 5, he says, Now I go away to him who sent me. Verse 6, Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. So this age of grace, we've got an advantage over saints that walked with Jesus on earth but didn't yet have... Uh, the resurrection reality, post-resurrection reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Verse 8, when the Spirit's come, He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, of judgment, of sin because they don't believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you all things to come. 
He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. So this is an indication in Acts 2, after they're saved, the church devotes themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the apostles' teaching. And a simple way to understand that is they took all the doctrines in the scriptures and made them understandable in light of Christ's completed work on the cross. And so God's final word on things is in the pages of the New Testament. And it, and, and it gets increasingly clear and the mystery becomes known. Two areas that the Old Testament prophets didn't talk about at all were the church and the rapture of the church. Everything we know about the church is, expl is explained in the letters of the apostles. That was part of that teaching they were doing to the saints. And as part of that, they also explained the rapture of the church uh, before the time of the tribulation. It's kind of like the Blue Ridge Mountains. So if you ever heard this, the Blue Ridge Mountain view of prophecy you're standing on a peak and you're looking this way and you see tops of mountains, right? You don't see the valleys between the mountains. Every once in a while you look and say, I think I can make something out there. And the prophets, as they looked forward, a couple peaks away would be what would happen to Israel within the next several hundred years. A little further on, they saw a peak with a virgin giving birth to the Messiah. And on that same kind of mountain range, they saw the things related to his ministry to Jew and Gentile alike, the healings that he did. They saw the cross. They saw the resurrection like Isaiah 53 talks about. Um, further out, they saw a time of trouble for Israel, an intense time of trouble. They saw the millennial things we talk about, the golden age of Israel. Uh, and they saw the final judgment, and even beyond that, they saw the new heavens and the new earth, right? Between the valley of the first, what we would call the first and second coming, they might have gotten a glimpse, just a little bit, of something that we would call the church. There's a couple indications in the Old Testament. Joel's prophecy, right, about talking about a time the sons and daughters would preach, you know, they'd, they'd be so excited they'd be sharing and stuff, you know, and those things. But it really was in the valley uh, between the peaks, using that Blue Ridge illustration, where it's there, they just didn't see as much about it. And the apostles explain all to us about the church and the rapture of the church. So you got that. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. This, in my mind, is just such an absolutely key passage because Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. And verse 6 says, When they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So get this. They saw him die. They saw him rise from the dead. He's about to ascend to heaven. And they say to him, hey, you going to rule on earth now? <laughs> Physical kingdom time yet? It's like, later, boys. If all that was to be poo-pooed and spiritualized and just not, if, if it wasn't going to happen at all, Jesus would have had to say it right there to them. You got it all wrong, fellas. Man, I'm glad we got this worked out before I go to heaven. There won't be a physical rule. All that spiritual. And you know, lots of Christians today, even conservative Christians, reject that there will be a physical rule of Christ later on and think it's only church now and heaven later. 
Um, and uh, But I think Jesus is clearly saying there, that time of physical rule is going to happen, just not yet. Now, there's other passages to look at, but I want to be fair to your time, and eventually we get to them all anyway. But I also want you just to write down there Romans 9 through 11. Many people get Romans 9 through 11 all wrong. They, uh, they pull out the words on election there and they you know, think, think that, oh boy, let's all jump in and be Calvinists and stuff. You know? And I'm not having that discussion with you right now. I'm just telling you Romans 9 through 11 is answering something else. It's answering the Gentile Christians saying, what about Israel? What about Israel, Paul? And he explains there that we are in kind of a parentheses time now. And one day, God's going to get back on that track to keep the promises made to Israel. And we are going to look at that next time, Romans 9 through 11, along with the tribulation passages and how that fulfills what's talked about in the book of Daniel. And so that's going to be good and glorious. And thank you for your attention uh, with some heady stuff. But I think this is useful to help us go through. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.